Hi, you're listening to a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for week ending the 3rd of February. Our first week on air together. Yes! <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll be on Triple R every weekday morning, of course, from 6 till 9am, broadcast live from Melbourne, Australia. And coming up on this podcast, our first of the year, you'll hear how Nat fails to glow up her new licensed photo. Then Dr. Jem will be refreshing our minds with a talk about the biochemistry behind brain fatigue. Mari Kondo has given given up so you can too. We speak with Dr. Liz Jones about stepping down in her role as artistic director and co-CEO of La Mama Theatre and Simon Hinckley gives us the lowdown on March Flies. Our resident lit lover, say that a few times, Fee Wright reads <laughs> Seth Rogen's yearbook and we canvas our attitudes towards random bump-ins. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. So this week I was um, trying to sign up to an app that you split, which allows you to split money with a group of people for my basketball team. Oh, so and handy, by the yeah, way. Yeah, it's, it's really great, really handy, recommend it. Because <laughs> um, everyone thinks it all equals out, but it doesn't. You're like, <laughs> oh, I'll grab it next time. And then you bought them a three-course meal and then they buy your muffin. Not that we're keeping tabs, no, but not. look. It's, it's handy. Um, but that reminded me because I had to verify my details because I was um, adding a credit card that I actually have no um, – I'm unable to verify my ID at the moment or who I am because my licence has expired. It's been expired for over six months, I discovered, and so is my passport. I think my passport's even worse. Wow. Um, How exciting. Yeah, you're like it a non, You're like a non-person. Yeah, <laughs> I know. It's not the worst thing, I guess, in this age of, like, more and more data breaches and, like, stealing of identity. Not the best if, you know, I want to drive or I'm pulled yeah. over um, or if I want to go overseas. But anyway... Um, but so this, it was joining the app, not the aforementioned that prompted me to actually finally take some action and do something after six months. So yesterday was the big day. Congratulations. Yeah, that I finally went and I went to um, Big Rose. I didn't <laughs> pace yourself. <laughs> we'll tackle the license first. Um so I went to Vic Rhodes, yeah, to get the new licence. And I think that, you know, there's no certainties in life, are there? Or, you know, very few. But I feel like you can pretty much always rely on it being quite a long wait at Vic Rhodes. Mm. Yeah, would you both agree? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean... Under ordinary circumstances, absolutely. And certainly for the purposes of this story, I'm inclined to agree with you. But yep. I did have Please, one, no, 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 don't experience. agree for the point of the story. <laughs> I, wanna... I definitely don't want to derail. I just have had a couple of very fortunate experiences. Yeah, wow. So if you were to ask me if I were to testify under oath if this would be my personal yes. understanding of the situation, it's not it's necessarily. Not... But I, like I support this... your worldview. I, I'm with Simon there where oh, I wow. feel like there is a cultural vibe Based on, I think, maybe the DMV in the States. Yeah, okay. Uh, every sitcom, oh, stuck at the DMV. The yeah. DMV take their so slow at the DMV. <laughs> and I feel like I've absorbed that and then put, projecting that onto the hardworking Vic Rhodes employees. And then you've been pleasantly surprised. Well, that's right. Mine is the excitement of seeing my number appear immediately yeah, and I feeling mean, like I've won something. Yeah, wow. Well, I think maybe, yeah, you've definitely got a point there. Like I've absorbed it. I feel like at some stage or another, I have experienced a, a long line. Yeah, but and I don't it sounds know. like yesterday was one of those examples. Well, no, here's the thing oh. it was very smooth and very quick. Okay. okay? So I arrived um, and I went to the counter. 
didn't even have time to fill out my form. And they said, um, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm renewing my license. And then they said, would you like a new photo? And I said, yes. Nice. I, I want one. 2023. Yeah, let's go. Let's do this. And I, I should say that my previous photo, I was happy with. It was fine. What a new photo. And then they're like, how many years? And I went, all on red. Let's go 10 years. Let's go. <laughs> Things are going well. I've got a job. I can fork out that $200. So stakes are high. I've got a 10-year license, new photo. Yesterday, you know, this is my first week on Breakfast Radio. Um, I, I did have a bit of a midweek hump, so I wasn't feeling my freshest. I was banking on a line yeah. to glamorise myself <laughs> for that photo. I mm. had huge, huge plans for that photo. Like I had, you know, a ring light in my bag. I had hairspray. <laughs> I had lipstick. I had eyelashes. I had extensions. Like I was going to be yeah. barely. Because this is you in 2032. Exactly. I was going to be, I had plans to be barely recognisable, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Maybe I was going to wear a wig for crying out loud. And so I was like, okay. So I got my bag and like went to make my way to the seat to just transform mm. And then she walked right around and she's like, Natalie. Wow, your time. My time. I could. I was Classical. scrambling. I was like going through my bag, like just grabbing at anything, like smearing anything I could on my face to try and be, if you're not picking it up, so like maybe the, a little the, bit vain. The Homer Simpson makeup shotgun, that <laughs> yeah, sort of thing. Yeah, that's what I needed. Oh, my God, exactly. Um, and then, yeah, there it was. It was like step in front of the camera and boom. Amazing. At the most, like, I feel like the, yeah, the most tired I'd been in a while. <laughs> and I'm sure it was incredible. I'm sure you looked amazing. Oh, well, we'll find out in about <laughs> four to five weeks. So we're sitting on that. You got a significant photo headshot taken on a hump day. Exactly. Yeah. What a fool. What an amateur move. <laughs> and I, I am intrigued by the idea also that the Vic, Vic Roads people have all these people coming up to them primed to have a bad time, yeah. primed to have been waiting, primed to – but boom, they're onto it. You're they're ready. onto it, absolutely. Stage call. Yeah. And I actually – it's it was great and – it's a real hub of activity, Vic Rose, and then there's all the people going in and out of the car park to have the driving tests. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, almost, that's I almost fun. failed my driving test Did in you? the car park. It's the classic <laughs> move where you feel elated, everything's gone well, I haven't driven through any red lights, and then you're parking, and it's like, oh, actually, <laughs> ten, po- 10 point turn. Did it was, you fail in well, the car park? Well, it was park? so close. Oh, was I so failed close. my first driving test for speeding, um, which I think if you're going to go down, that's a pretty cool way. Yeah. My driving instructor was furious at me. You s- well, this is another <laughs> chat. I want to know all about that. But I'm, I'm wondering now if you've got your passport photo done and if, you're, if you've learnt from your mistakes. Oh, I haven't got it done. And yeah, let's hope I learn from my mistakes. I'll be hiring a full hair and makeup team. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be arriving. Like, you just wait. It's going to be stunning. Melbourne's own Triple R. Dr. Jen's back for Weird Science with Brain on Fire and, I don't know, raring to go. How are you? I am so well. I've had the best holiday. I'm so sorry for anyone who's listening who hasn't had a holiday. (laughs) Mm. I'm not trying to rub your face in it, but I managed to take a really good break and, oh, my gosh, I feel... 
Much better for it. Thank you. Beautiful. Oh, that's lovely to hear. Um, yeah, well, I hope we don't symbolise the status quo <laughs> when a turgid, you know, drain that you were running away from over summer. <gasps> no, I've been looking forward to seeing you guys for so long and Simon and Ad, it's so lovely to oh, see you here. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Very <laughs> thank exciting you. to be here. As Daniel will tell you, I'm going to harangue you very often about <laughs> science and you just have to smile and look like you're no, enjoying it, okay? Absolutely. Can you do that? Oh, I love it. Um, but it, it's, it has been a, a tough period for all of us, hasn't it? Oh, I think it's, yeah, I think it's been super tough mm. and I think everyone is really aware of how fatigued they are and we're all asking questions about, hang on, why do I work again? Oh, yes, because I need to pay my rent and mm. my bills or my mortgage or whatever it is. So, yeah, I don't know how you guys feel about productivity advice, but I thought for our first segment this year maybe it might be good to chat a little bit about if you are yes. trying to get back into yes, work. Absolutely. We'd love that. You like productivity advice? I'm obsessed with it, actually. I find it fascinating as a subject. Very rarely do I implement, but I find it very interesting as a I have to ask, Simon, have you read um, 4,000 Weeks? I, you Oliver know what, Berkman, this was one of Elizabeth McCarthy's biggest recommendations of last mm. year, or perhaps the year before, actually. Such a, how do you say, like a circumspect approach to the art of, of time management. Well, basically, he, I mean, this is not really anything to do with my segment, really, but basically his argument is that productivity advice is all a bit of a furphy, and we've all been totally conned into believing uh. that if we can just work smarter, not harder, we can revolutionise our days, whereas his argument is that actually it's just um, productivity advice is about avoiding making hard decisions because we simply don't have enough time to do all the things we want to do. So you just have to make hard decisions about, well, I simply don't have capacity or time for that, I'm not going to do it. And suddenly you don't need productivity advice because you're just trying to do the amount of work that you can fit into, you know, the hours of your day. Revolutionary, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> completely. absolutely. It sounds liberating. <gasps> anyway, I thought that um, today, given that you said at the start of the show, you know, February the 1st, it's a good mm. time to start new habits. I want to fill you in on a recent study that's talking about brain fatigue and brain chemistry, which I think is quite useful to understand. Um, so... What we need to know is that we have very good scientific evidence that mental fatigue is real. So as you progress through your day and you feel more and more tired or lethargic or you're finding it harder to concentrate, that is real. That's not you, just you going, oh, I need my coffee hit or I need my chocolate or whatever it is. That's very real. And there's been some really famous studies. Have you heard about any of the court studies that showed how judges' decision-making changes according oh, to yes. as they go through the day? You don't oh, wow. appear before them before lunch? Yeah, exactly. So basically, if you if you look at a judge who's tasked with deciding whether someone should be granted parole or not, and obviously, you know, granting someone parole is a bit risky, so it's a safer option just to say, no, you need to stay in jail. And they've tracked that exactly as a judge gets hungrier and tireder through a court session, they are much more likely to say, no, you don't get parole. And the difference is huge. It goes from about 65% yes, you're out, to 0% no, you're staying here, just through the course of a few hours which is full on, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Similarly, there's been studies with doctors showing that towards the end of a long day, doctors are much more likely to prescribe unnecessary antibiotics, I guess just to kind of, you know, give a patient some peace of mind. Yeah, Uh just take these pills and you'll be fine. So so mental fatigue is is real. But what does it mean for us who aren't, you know, doctors or judges or pilots? I mean, I know air traffic controllers, you know, they're only allowed to work for two hours making decisions and they have to have a break. But we don't all get half-hour breaks every two hours. <laughs> to be fair, I'm not sure my stakes are as high. I might buy, like, 
the wrong muffin or something, like, oh, I wish I got the other flavour. <laughs> yeah, but you still have to make decisions, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So the key thing to notice is that we all make decisions during the day. So this study came out of the um, Paris Brain Institute and they set people up into kind of simulated working days, six and a half hours at a computer, and they gave them either – they broke the people into two groups. They gave some of them really hard, mentally taxing, you know, jobs that required real concentration, so tasks like um, flashing letters up onto a computer screen and they had to really quickly make decisions about, based on their colour or whether it was lowercase, uppercase. So kind of totally fictitious tasks but simulating your brain getting really tired. Other people did similar tasks but much, much easier tasks. Um, and then they scanned people's brains during the day to look at what was going on in the brain chemistry. And so the thing you need to know is that your brain is really, really energy hungry. Your brain requires a huge amount of energy just to get you through the day, you know, breathing, everything else that your body has to do. Um, And as your brain converts nutrients into energy, it produces byproducts known as metabolites because basically, you know, producing energy from nutrition, that's metabolism. That's what we think of as metabolism. And there's one kind of metabolite which they were measuring and it's called glutamate. And glutamate is important. It's used to send energy between nerve cells but in large quantities it can actually become toxic and can change how our brain works so when you sleep at night one of the many things your brain is doing is clearing away these toxic metabolites so sleep you know is really really important and what the researchers found is that as you are made as these people were made to do these really hard you know high concentration tasks um, they got a build-up of this, this chemical glutamate in their brains. And we know that that is changing how our brains work, particularly in the part of your brain involved in planning and decision-making. So just imagine, as you work harder and harder and harder, your brain starts to become less and less able to do the hard work mm. because of chemistry. So this isn't just some airy-fairy, wishy-washy, oh, yeah, I feel a bit tired. This is actually chemicals in your brain. So, you know, they they split these people up, got them into their two groups, some of them working really hard, some of them working less hard, and then they measured these, um, these metabolites. And they found that the increase in glutamate concentration was really quite profound in the group working really, really hard. And it wasn't occurring in all parts of the brain, but it was occurring in the parts of our brain responsible for planning and decision making. So what does that tell you about how we undermine It tells you I'm about ability? 30% glutamate. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I guess they, you know, so that was the first finding in this study. Glutamate is real, it increases, it's really, it's a problem if you're working really hard. But then they wanted to test, well, does it have an effect on people? Mm. So then they made these poor people who've just sat at a computer for six and a half hours do these decision tests. So things like how hard are you willing to push yourself on an exercise bike? How hard are you willing to, like what sort of brain puzzles are you willing to do? How hard are they? And how patient are you willing to be? And unsurprisingly, the people who'd done these really difficult puzzles all day had the build-up of glutamate. are like, no, no, I'm going to take the easy option. I'm not going to push myself to do anything hard. Why would I push myself? I'm feeling really exhausted. Um, so I guess, you know, it just tells us that during the day we do actually become fatigued mm. and maybe we need to think really carefully about our work days and we need to break up our hard tasks and, and have 
you know, compulsory enforced breaks between them. But I think the main thing I take away is that if there's something that comes up in the afternoon that's going to require difficult decision-making, you know, I'm going to take the easiest option. I'm not going to do something that requires any hard thinking. So if at all possible, I need to put it off till tomorrow till I've had a sleep. My brain's done its work, you know, my sleep's done its work cleaning up my brain a bit so that I can think clearly again the next day. So if you're talking about sort of resolutions and you wanted to do a bit more exercise, you might time that earlier in the day so you've got less resistance distance potentially yeah so I think it's just telling us that we're we're really good at taking easy options Mm. short-term rewards Mm. you know later in a day that's been a a challenging day Mm. it must I mean it must be different for different people but for me this tracks where it's just diminishing returns later (laughs) in the day yeah yeah. Exactly. Something exactly. that would take you five minutes takes an hour oh yeah so why not wait till tomorrow when it'll be five minutes again yep so maybe it just means we all need to have siestas every day that go yeah. all afternoon <laughs> and we would be so productive in the morning hours that we wouldn't need to work full days. What I do like you think? This. I love it. Yes, let's enforce it. Could I ask a quick question about the glutamates? Is there a sense that they go back to zero after a good night's sleep or is there an accumulation there? Yeah, awesome question. I couldn't find anything about, you know, the actual levels and I, and I imagine the levels are absolutely tiny. You know, we're not talking about your brain suddenly <laughs> being flooded with this stuff. Yeah. It's just that they could see an increase and an accumulation I mean maybe it depends on how much sleep we get right (laughs) and if we're not you know dealing with this sleep debt that so many of us carry all the time yeah. and we wake up fatigued I mean I'd love to know I, I don't know I'm not a chemist or a, or a you know neuroscientist myself but I would imagine that maybe some of that fatigue could be the result of glutamate hanging around it is interesting when I make an a, appointment to see a GP I try not to do it later in the day because <laughs> it's like well if I were them I'd want to go home yeah. absolutely and so but here's this schmo coming in with his lame problem yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I guess, you know, if I'm ever up for parole, yes. know, if I ever get a say in it, can I, can I see the judge straight after breakfast? Please? Exactly. <laughs> or for God's sake, give them some protein bars. Yeah. <laughs> Bring snacks. <laughs> exactly. yeah. uh, Dr. Jen, amazing as always. And uh, can't wait to chat with you throughout the year. I can't wait. Triple R. So it's been in the news the last couple of days. I know, Simon, you brought it to my attention. I'm sure most people or a fair few people would have heard about how Mari Kondo, um, the professional tidier, um, who sold millions of copies of her books, um, she's had two Netflix specials. Um, I think, uh, and I think she was even, yeah, she was nominated for um, an Emmy for hosting one of her Netflix specials. And she was also listed as Time Magazine's most interesting people. Um, So she's come out um, after all this time and she has said she's kind of given up on being tidy. Okay. So um, after years of us all aspiring to be more like her, Failing at that, she's just like, you know what, she's had a couple of kids and she said, you know what, forget about it. A few kids and it's broken her. From all accounts, I've heard parenting is a breeze. So come on, Marie Kondo. But here's the thing why I'm so disappointed. So her book like gained like massive popularity in 2011. But this was the year I was going to, I was going to start Getting into degluttering. This was the year I was going to try dip my toes in the water. Well, I think the door is very much still open, if that's a mixed metaphor. You, you can still dip your toes in that pool. 
once you've walked through that door. But how can we trust her, Simon? Well, see, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I, I am a huge admirer of Marie Kondo. I have all the books. I've watched all of the, the specials. I applauded at all of the Emmy Awards yeah. nominations and um, received. You applauded the Emmy nominations. I mean, I feel like with Simon's voice, we all knew this on some level. I feel like you don't have that dulcet tone in these lovely linen shirts. You don't have a messy bedroom, do well, you? No, well, I mean, that's, that's very kind of you to say. It's a very generous assessment. I say that I live in a, a degree of chaos, absolutely. I certainly think that there is something beautiful and maybe um, compassionate about the meeting of, of pragmatism with, with philosophy and what's yep. happened to Marie Kondo at the moment. Yeah. There's a sense that we shouldn't necessarily abandon our principles or values, but we must understand that it sometimes meets the jagged edges of reality and we have yeah. to be accommodating and flexible. That's, That's right. True. And I think Marie Kondo, it's a phase. Ah. I think she'll be back. She'll yeah. bounce back. Well, she's releasing it's a book. It's just these condo kids. The condo kids. <laughs> I mean, why isn't that. there more blame on that? Yeah, come on. Three kids. They're ripping the hope out of... <laughs> Out of all legions of, of declutterer aspirationals. Well, she, she's got a new book coming out now, okay. which is all about decluttering the mind. Okay. So um, there you I'm go. I'm pressing pre-order on that. <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. But, yeah, this is the thing. I, I don't do New Year's resolutions, but it is very tempting. Like a lot of the segment contributors today have been mentioning it, being in the 1st of February, the year kind of really feels like it's kicking off. And there is a kind of deal you make with yourself. Even if you're like, no, 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 that's silly. Like I can change my behaviour on any day of the year. Why does it have to be the start of the year? But there is something tempting about like the start of it, yeah, the blank page of a year. And it was definitely going to have less stuff. My room is in utter chaos and I'm incredibly challenged when it comes to um, organising things. Like if I try and organise things like, because is her method about putting things in boxes? Well, I mean, from what I understand, it's it's sort of a multi-tiered process, but certainly there is a degree to which you categorise items. And if you're, for example, decluttering, you might declutter by category, starting yes. with some easy wins, for example, maybe clothes, yes. and then finishing with the more sort of sentimental items that are difficult to let go of. Are you auditioning to read the audio? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. We've got a true fan here. Um yeah, so I... I, just... I mean, I'm a fake declutterer, I think, lately, because I started the year with, a same as you, mm. this desire for minimalism, and my dirty secret is yeah. that a lot of the chaos... Is in the cupboard. Uh, in the boot of the car. <laughs> no one looks in there. Not even I do. Oh. So I've stashed it in the cut so I don't... It's not even on the premises. Oh, my God. That's brilliant. That is... I think I've been debating whether I should get a car or not, and I think that's just pushed me the over Daniel the Daniel Burt boot method. Yeah. <laughs> storage out of sight, out, out of mind. 100%. And you just forget what's in there. It's just getting heavier and heavier. We see Daniel pull up to the station, the boots just dragging. <laughs> Full of all this paper. Yeah, I'm getting, like, images of Uncle Buck for some reason. That boot here, I feel like he put stuff in that boot. Yeah, okay, so in the boot, in the cupboard, or it's about embracing chaos. I think so. I mean, in your case, is there a degree to which, yeah, there's an understanding of where everything lies, even if it isn't necessarily, like, classically sort of tidied? Because I was also thinking about what Dr. Jen said before about the idea of prioritisation yeah. and productivity being sometimes a distraction from just what's 
you know, what's important and maybe, you you know, you, you can function perfectly well with the current system. You don't need to change I it. I don't think I can. Like, I have a rough idea, like, oh, I know that things are kind of in that corner and I know that if I'm looking for my journal, it'll probably be over there. But... I mean, if I could see my, like, life in, like, a pie chart or a percentage that I'm rummaging through my crap, it would be high (laughs) to find things and get out of the door. And I think that this job is a real motivator Mm. to um, just streamline things because I'm constantly, I feel like, just moving things between bags, like, just constantly, like, last night I moved my, like, key items from the bag I bring to work to another one and I just live in fear and it does happen often that I go turn up somewhere with the wrong bag and and nothing in tow. Mm. So I feel like I just need less things. I thought you moved into a new place uh, within maybe, I don't know, the last 12 months. Yeah. And I I would have thought that was an opportunity in addition to February 1 of a clean slate. You'd think that. So I'm surprised that you... um, you dragged your chaos with you into the new environment. Yeah. And, look, I'm going to put some of the blame on my mum here as well. (laughs) As an adult woman in her 30s, I'm going to shift to my mum. She's always like, oh, don't throw that out or encourages us to to keep things quite sentimental. Emphasis on legacy. And I was also going to say, when moving is such an emotionally distressing experience anyway, then having on top of that the the process of decluttering, that that would probably be an overwhelming task. So I can understand why you... I love how much empathy I'm getting here. (laughs) This is great. That I moved about a year and a half ago and I I haven't got around to decluttering. I love this. Well, I'm... Yeah, it's a shame that you've got to carry the load of someone's sentimentality. Yeah. So your mother has (laughs) gone into bat for these items and so you're you're snookered i mean you, you can to again once you've put down the bat and picked up the snooker the yeah the snooker cue for those metaphors uh now if you throw it out it's like a slight on your mother yeah and i love that like she's literally not saying don't throw that out but it's more just yeah she's embedded it in my psyche over the years god we're hard on our mums aren't we <laughs> well, look, if Mrs. Harris wants to chuck any of Nat's shit in my boot, it's okay. <laughs> Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Dr Liz Jones has worked both as an artist and staff member at La Mama Theatre, acknowledged globally as a crucible for cutting-edge contemporary theatre since 1973 and became artistic director in 76 following the retirement of its founder and her mentor, Betty Burstall. Liz's tenure and dedication to live theatre has seen her receive the Green Room Lifetime Achievement Award, her name placed on the Victorian Women's Honour Roll, and in 2013 she was made an Officer of the Order of Australia. Now Liz has decided it's time to wind back her responsibilities at La Mama and to tell us about the outgoing artistic director and co-CEO joins us now. Liz, welcome back to Breakfasters. Thanks, Dan. Oh, boy. Uh, <laughs> are you, have you come to terms with the decision? Yeah, it's taken me a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, then I think, you know, I guess you'd expect it would take me a while having been... La Mama having been so much part of my life for 50 years... Um, uh, but I, I think I have. I'm actually starting to feel um, freer uh, and starting to think in a different, a slightly different kind of way, I think. Nice. I can't imagine the amount of problems that you've had to solve. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, let, what are the maths of it? How many shows, say, a year? 
Oh, well, <laughs> gosh. Heavens, about like, 50. About 50. About so, 50. So let's say 50 for 50 years. That's, say, let's say 2,500 shows <laughs> that you're across and there would always be something. Always. Mm. Always a little bushfire here or there. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> uh, and, and so... But you're not going away completely, are you? No, I'm not. Mm -hmm. Um, As you probably know, in 2018, La Mama was razed to the ground in a terrible fire. And at that time, so much was lost. I had 40 years of diaries that were lost. All our video archives, which were stored at La Mama, were lost. Um, Many photographic archives, although we have most of those on disc, but the videos are gone. Um... And many other records which, I mean, each day since the fire, I think of something that got lost, you know. Um, And so what I'm going to do is try and sort of bring all that stuff together. And I'm not going to write the definitive history. I just want to bring it all together so someone else can write the definitive history um, so that little things aren't lost. Yeah. Tell us about the space. I've heard you speak that you can't really overact at La Mama. (laughs) <laughs> you cannot. <laughs> no, it's a very honest space. That's why I love it. That's why I've been wedded to it for 50 years. Um, you can't overact unless you actually want to be overacting. Mm. Um, you can have a talk in a very normal voice. You can have very intense interaction. Um, one of the things Betty Burstall said, because often uh, at La Mama in the past we used to have very small audiences. That doesn't happen much now. We're being yes. te- hugely well supported. But in the past sometimes we struggled with three or four and Betty said it was so wonderful with a small audience you felt it was like a command performance in your own private tram. <laughs> <laughs> so that, she's famous for that. Um, and I think that's how I've felt at times too, that, that intimacy, that um, and there have been performances where, you know, the, the audience have been limited to 10 or mm. to 6 um, or to 20 or whatever, you know. Yeah. And other occasions, like um, one occasion when we had Helen Garner reading, I think we wow. packed about 100 in. <laughs> yeah, <of course>. yeah. <laughs> we don't do that now, of course. <laughs> Health and safety regulations, you know. <laughs> I love that you can, what, you can do anything in the space but paint over the exit sign. That's right, you can. I love that. (laughs) Yes, it is. And we've, we've, you know, the wonderful thing is that with the rebuild, we've actually maintained that principle Mm. so that you can still do anything in the space except paint over the exit signs. Beautiful. Um, I just want to think about your uh, commitment to theatre and managing the numbers and all the annoying side of it and maybe shielding people from or absorbing some of the pain of theatre so that people can have the freedom to create art and your role in being a stable force in an organisation that's committed to being new and sometimes iconoclastic. I think never letting go of the fact that the most important thing about the space is that it's it's an artist-led space, that the most important thing that's happening there is the, the creation of new work that, I mean, that's where I have got my energy from in the last 50 years and that's, what, that's what's kept La Mama fresh and going and the, the fact that it's always open to newcomers. There's never a sort of... A, a, an in, yeah. there, there are no members and non-members at La Mama. Yeah. Any, anyone who comes 
is welcome and can be part of things. That's what I was going to ask. Like on a personal note, do you have, I suppose it's similar to what you're saying there, like a core value that is your approach when putting on theatre, when putting on a show. It's something that you always go back to or what, what you think theatre's kind of role is. I, it's that I believe, I absolutely believe in the, the healing power mm. of art. Yeah. I believe in the integrity of artists. I believe that whatever artists are creating that deserves respect, mm-hmm. whether it's successful or not successful. Yeah. Um, and that, that I, I guess I think that, uh, and I think that absolutely there is an artist within everyone. Yeah. I've always thought that as both a teacher, because I taught in the schools for 20 years and as, as the artistic director of them, and that there needs to be a space where that can be given a chance. Yeah. Without having to be a millionaire or mm-hmm. married to one. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. absolutely. Did your husband once tie people up? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, he gagged them too. <laughs> <laughs> He's a wonderful theatre maker. I've, I've, we made a wonderful piece of theatre last December with 15 of us under Lloyd's leadership. Yeah, so still going. The things that go on, yeah. Uh, I wonder whether the you know, over the decades, the funding and that you have to be, you know, worried about the Australia Council ditches you and then comes back and then ditches you again. What does that do to you? Oh, it's terrible. Um, You know, the first... In in 2006, when the Australia Council put us on notice, um, John Bayliss asked me, how did I feel? And I said, I felt like someone... I felt like, a um, you know, an ancient wife being discarded, (laughs) you know, because we weren't new. Mm. And I, I, I couldn't because there was this um, mantra, make it new, and I felt, you know. Uh, but anyway, we were put on notice, but we weren't defunded. Mm. The first time we were ever defunded was in 2020, um, which was a, a terrible shock. Yeah. Um, and I'm so thrilled with uh, Tony Burke's announcements that he's yeah. going to make today but that have already been leaked to the press. Yeah. Do you think about the fact that Betty founded... Uh, La Mama, and you almost you rebuilt it, like in a way. Well, I kept it going. I, 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 because Betty, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I just kept it going. Mm. But, but Uh, I mean, it it like literally burnt down. Yeah. Oh, it literally burnt down in 2018. Oh, yes, it literally burnt down. Um, yeah. But we look. It was like we've had two wonderful experiences. Uh, in terms of support from the community. The first was in 2008 when we were given the first option and we raised the $1.7 million to buy it. The second was when it was burnt down. Um, within two, three weeks of it being burnt down, Martin Foley rang me in Japan and told me, Liz, I've got a million for you. Oh. Mm-hmm. And that just kicked it off and it kind of went from there. Yeah, that is amazing. Then philanthropists came up with another million mm. and then... We, we raised 3.5. Can you believe it? And Sometimes it takes... Oh, sorry, Simon. But it takes these kind of crises for people to realise how much, like, how important that theatre is to them and it's something that they've always gone to, could always rely on and it's almost that fear of, like, that, you know, it's almost not a good thing. I'm not going to say the fire was a good thing, no, but a good kind mean, of realisation for the community. It is, and, and, and for us, because often we do feel a bit overlooked and forgotten and little and all those things, and then... Something like that happens, and here is all this support, and you realise that people do know you exist, mm-hmm. and that they do love you, and they do care for you, and that when push comes to shove, they'll stand up and support you. Yep, absolutely. Run through some of your highlights. Yeah. 
Well, I guess raising the money to buy La Mama because I, you know, I first talked about buying La Mama like about 25 years earlier uh, and had kept hatching little plans in my head, so that was a great thrill. Mm. Um, I have to say, I think the first really thrilling thing for, well, apart from my just going to La Mama and performing at La Mama, going to Night Flowers, my first ever show in uh, uh, 1973, performing in Lloyd-Jones's The Garden uh, in 1973. But in 1977, Anne Eckersley and I brought back... we, we, uh, we invited all the artists who'd ever worked at La Mama over the last 10 years, from 67 to 77, to bring a show, an old one or a new one, back. And for me, that was wonderful because all the stuff I'd missed out on in the six years that I'd never been to La Mama, suddenly I was seeing. Yeah. Um, and one highlights like David Williamson's Removalist, <laughs> um, Jack Hibbard's early works, um, Martin and, and Jan Friel's doing um, uh, words and music. I mean, I mean, you know, it was just so exciting. It was like a, like doing a PhD in in four weeks. Yeah, <laughs> and it's not just a launching pad. People come back, don't they? Like as they you're come back, yeah. and they come back, and and that's just one of the wonderful things. Mm. You know, people, Julia Blake, Sheila Florence, um, well, my husband Lloyd, mm. James Clayden. The, People don't leave. Uh, that's the thing about uh, La Mama. See, that's what I did. People come to La Mama and then they don't leave. <laughs> uh, now, is it fair to say that uh, Caitlin Dallard has done a pretty significant apprenticeship? A, a pretty significant apprenticeship of 15 years, mm. yes. <laughs> and so uh, Caitlin's taking over your role yes. while you wind back. And uh, are you optimistic about the role of theatre in Melbourne? I know it probably ebbs and flows. Look, and it does ebb and flow um, and the losing our Australia Council funding was a huge blow. I'm now feeling much more optimistic uh, about that. I have been feeling optimistic actually ever since um, the Albanese government was in power um, um, and Tony Burke was, was uh, our Minister for the Arts. Um, yeah, uh, if... Because we, I know we're well supported by Creative Victoria and well supported by the City of Melbourne, if we can get the Australia Council, now called Creative Australia, That's I right, think, yeah. back in with us. And I think they want to. You know, they didn't want to defund us. They just they had so little money they could only fund two theatres in Victoria That's and they funded back-to-back, of course, and Hilbitchery, of course, mm. and we came third. So I'm, I am... Secretly optimistic, and you were Ilbidgeri, and you were pretty closely tied. Yes, yes, I've been working with Ilbidgeri since the since the early nineties. Mm. Yeah. So, if we want to support live theatre and the idea of high artistic risk and, I guess, low financial risk for artists, go see live theatre at La Mama. Absolutely, yes. Mm. Come and and have a wonderful time at our spa- in one of our spaces. Yes, and the full program, your last, is all up. Yes, it's all up. Online. On the website. Yeah, at lamama.com.au. Go check out what's in store for 2023. Liz Jones, congratulations and thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Simon, Dan and Nat. Thank congratulations. you. Congratulations. Triple R. Simon Bugman, Hinkley's here to talk all things that buzz. Morning, Simon. Good morning, everybody. Especially uh, the, the new folks that I haven't met before. <laughs> yeah. So nice to be here. Thank you. Is there a technical term for buzzing or 
It, do you just say buzz too? I say buzz. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. Um, now, what's going on out there in insect land? Well, I thought I'd talk about March flies and I've timed this. I've hit the sweet spot of getting the timing wrong. <laughs> yeah. because, um, so we call them March flies in Australia, but basically it's probably a, uh, it's come across from the Northern Hemisphere. So in the UK, for example, in the United Kingdom, March flies might start flying around the start of their spring, which would be for them, for the Northern Hemisphere, March. So our peak activity for March flies is to uh, December, January. Yep. So I've hit the sweet spot in the middle of, of getting both of them wrong. Fantastic. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so I thought I'd talk about March flies just because there was some interest uh, in January about them. Um, so it's a it's a large group of uh, from the Tabanidae family and there's hundreds of species in Australia and thousands around the world. Um, and most of us probably would have been bitten by them at some point mm-hmm. on the beach, in the mountains, that sort of thing. Uh, they quite hurt, if I remember They do correctly. really hurt. They yeah. do really hurt. And I was actually thinking about that because I thought, you know, for example, if you get a leech, it applies an anaesthetic. You know, you don't know you've had a leech often until you look down and there's a great big fat bloated leech on you or at the end of the day your shoe is full of blood if you've mm. been bushwalking. So... Some creatures will apply an anaesthetic and the march fly just basically soars into your skin. Um, and they have quite strong mouth parts because there are records of them being on crocodiles. So you can imagine trying to get through that skin. So they do have very good mandibles. Um, and it does make you think, why would they not bother to give us an anaesthetic? And I guess if you think if you're a leech and you're full of blood and you're slow and sloppy, someone's going to smash you pretty easily. But obviously being a march fly, you can take off that sort of thing. And also if you think about their their prey being basically any vertebrate, um, if you get on the back of a of a bison or the back of a, a cow or a horse, um, once you're out of tail range, they can't really dislodge you. Whereas, So there's no need for them to develop an anaesthetic. Obviously that doesn't work with us because our hands are quite good and we feel the pain and pretty quickly whack them. Can I ask one question? Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, no, but if I it. bang, if I murder a march fly, yeah. and the more you talk about them, the more I'm into that. Yes. Um, and blood, I see blood. Yeah. What are the chances that there's more than my blood in there? Do they have blood, they have blood in them? Yes. Yeah. And it's our blood? It is our blood. And do they suck on us for as long as they're full? Or if one was in here and they got Nat and they got me? Well, what they... A the, cocktail of the blood. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the reason why that they do bite us is it's only the females that bite... Um, bite us to get a blood meal. So it's the same as with mosquitoes. And the reason that they do that is that they need the blood, they need the proteins in the blood to produce the eggs and develop the next generation, which is why they're really, really persistent because if they don't get the blood, no eggs. So if you're being bitten, it's a female. And there are some March flies that are solely feed on nectar. So there are some that do pollination, so not all deserve to be murdered. But, yes, yeah, so, so back to your question, um, that... Happily, the ones in Australia don't transmit diseases between people. So, yes, you can imagine if I had something and it came and bit me and then bit you, that's that's a risk. Same with mosquito. Well, obviously malaria, but but happily, you know, things there, there are a lot of diseases that happily are not spread um, vector to vector. So, yes, they do get blood um, and it depends on... So when they bite us, they basically sort of soar in, introduce an anticoagulant, which helps the blood flow because they want to get the job done and then they sort of lap it up as it, as it pulls. So if... Nat hits it pretty quickly as soon as she feels pain. Yeah. She, so not it, she, because we're not so she. Yep. She will go, okay, well, that hurt. I'll give Simon a go. And then, you know, that sort of thing. So, um, and you might have noticed, I don't generally advocate the murder of insects, mm. but um, I do find it quite satisfying at the beach. Well, actually infuriating. You know, when you get bitten and you go, oh, that hurt, and you whack it. Yeah. Not hard enough, and it flies off. So my advice would be if you're going in, go hard because they're really, really tough. They yeah. will they will fly off. And now that I know that they're all female, I'm going to name them. I'll be like, Deborah, get <laughs> off! <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, so very, very impressive animals. And so I guess we then talk about uh, people often say, well, I'm the only one that gets bitten. How do I get rid of them? How do I not attract them? Yeah. It has been shown there's probably a whole lot of um, various, I guess, it's no point doing inverted commas on radio, but I'm doing inverted commas <laughs> remedies. He's doing inverted uh, commas, yeah. everyone. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think I read something like eating bananas uh, helps to repel them. I don't think that's scientifically proven, but it is proven that they are attracted to dark blue colours. So the March flies are attracted to um, things like movement, heat, and you can imagine if you are... It, you know, in Australia, pre-people, you're looking for something like a kangaroo, you're looking for an emu, you're looking for a dark, moving, hot object. Mm. So when we head down the beach um, and we have our dark blue clothes on, if we do, that's a, that's a target. And that interestingly led into one of the reasons apparently why zebras have stripes, because in Africa, the flies there do transmit potentially lethal diseases between um, things like uh, zebras and other species. So it really pays for you not to get bitten by March flies. So they've done studies where they look at the zebras or, for example, they've re replicated them in the UK where they have a horse and then they put a horse with a zebra skin on it. And they've shown that the March flies uh, do not land on the striped version anywhere near as much as the unstriped version. So this could be a new popular summer outfit for beach going to <laughs> potentially... Well, I, I sort of think make it a... Um, if you want to make it a scientific experiment, if there's two of you going down the beach, one of you go solid dark blue, one of you go light stripes and just see who gets bitten more. Because if you do, we'll, we'll try Monday versus Tuesday, maybe Tuesday's really windy, conditions mm. weren't the same. So if you want to go scientific, you need a control and the other one. So, <laughs> yeah, the and friend that you like the least. certain information to your friend who exactly. you've gone to the beach with. Exactly. You went the Navy, I'll wear the zebra. Yeah. Yeah, and what's really also quite sort of impressive about them, not only are the adults really voracious uh, feeders, but their larvae are, are brutal. So they will lay their eggs in the sand or in water, depending on the species, and the larvae um, get quite large and they will basically catch anything they can. They have like a pair of little sort of fangs at the end that they grab and inject something, inject the prey with. And there's even records in the States of them. I really like the headline was like pulling down toads. And then I had to Google the species. It's actually quite a small little critter. But yes, they had would have sort of frogs or toads on the surface and the larvae sort of grabbed them from below and just sort of slowly Get out. <laughs> suck them dry and pull them down. So, um, yeah, they're pretty ferocious. Buggers. Yeah. Uh, and now where – what do human – what do we have in our lives that attracts them and that we could maybe mitigate? Well, unfortunately, um, unless you are passed away... Actually, even then, there's records of them feeding on recently deceased people because I guess the blood is still pretty good. Yeah. Um, but basically, they are going to be attracted to movement, uh, heat and the colour. So, you know, like I'm really, really, really white. So if I go to the, down to the beach, I'm not going to be looking dark, but I'm going to be moving and I'm going to be hot as hell because I'm a sweater. So they're going to go... Even if I don't wear dark blue... They're going to be on me. So there's not much... Oh, basically what we can do is like really whack on the deet, you know, the, the insecticide with the, the known things. If you've got some remedy of clove oil, cinnamon, bananas, you know, and it works for you... All about those essential oils. Go crazy, <laughs> but um, I don't know that that's proven, okay. whereas the old um, deadly insecticide is, yeah. Is there a reason they're... Are they fatter than your regular fl fly? They're big flies. Like yeah. the March flies are probably about, you know, 25 millimetres an inch would be a good size for a March fly. And if you sort of ever look at one up close or just Google them by image, they have very large eyes. So obviously, you know, being a predator on the wing, they, they need to have good vision. And they sort of think that the stripes, um, it's very complex. And they're still actually working out what is going on because there are, I didn't even know this, there are different species of zebra that have different 
stripe patterns and they're sort of going, are they all, so they'll avoid the zebra, but is this particular stripe pattern more avoided or are they, you know, so they're still working out exactly what it is that makes the the march fly go, well, there's a horse, Mm. happy to get on that, easy, but I don't seem to be able to see or land on that striped thing there. Um, And so they're still working out why, but I guess certainly from a a human point of view, if they can work out a a pattern, as you say, that you could use, you know, if you happen to be in a really prone area, like up in the mountains in in summer can be really bad. Mm. Um, And it isn't like their impact are saying that they don't spread disease between people in Australia, but they are a real problem for livestock. So you can imagine um, if you're a poor cow or a horse out in the field, um, they've shown that they can lose about 300 mils of blood a day if they're being just like swarmed by March flies. I don't know how many litres of blood a horse or a cow has, but Mm. if you're getting that three days a week, that's a lot of blood and a lot of distress. So they've actually shown that um, if you have unattacked animals and attacked animals, the unattacked put on more weight, produce more milk, are probably a lot healthier and a lot happier. Mm. So it's, it's not just sort of, yes, we're annoyed, but we have the ability to swat and put on insecticide. I do feel for those animals that are not able to do that. Did you say they go for crocs? They have been known to, um, to that, go for crocodiles. Is that uh, futile? I mean, I thought this. <laughs> Thin would be skin would be so thick. It really, really would. And I was thinking the same thing. That apparently the, the height is incredible. So I'm imagining they're probably going somewhere around the eye, somewhere like where there's a bit of a, um, a bit of sort of softness around, like an orifice or an eye. That around mm. it, I assume crocodiles have have an ear where the, the a, a space there for mm. vulnerable spaces. Exactly. Yeah. So they, they go, yeah, they go for your vulnerable spaces. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I tell you what, they, and when do they disappear? If you're in a tropical area, they can be year round. Uh, another reason why. I don't like the tropical regions. No, no, yeah. no offence to the tropical regions. But, yeah, look, in tropical areas, they, you can get two generations a year and they will be there in some numbers all year round. For us, um, we shouldn't be getting them through winter, so they generally do peak. Uh, the, loca- the records peak in December and January. They love hot, calm days. So today... Today we're probably safe, you know, 17 degrees, bit of rain, whatever it is going to be. Um, but they should be dropping out uh, as we move forward, certainly getting into March, th- uh, ironically, as we get into March, really sort of dropping down, whereas for the Northern Hemisphere, ranking up sort of thing. All right. Well, Simon Hinckley, March fly aficionado and renowned sweater. Uh, <laughs> welcome back to 2023 and thank you. Thanks very much. Triple R. Breakfast's resident reader, Fee Wright, is indeed back to talk books. Welcome, Fee. Good morning. Good morning. I am. I am very excited. Look at these. I mean, I say look. That is. That is actually a really terrible way to start my year for a breakfast radio segment. But I've seen some new faces here in the studio, and I'm very excited about them. Hearing hearing Simon's dulcet tones uh, on the way in. He's 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 so he's so calming. It's, it's, all, it's all, my, all panic. It's really. all panic. There are, there are cars driving off the road. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, when my alarm went off this morning, I was like, oh gosh, Simon, you, you're just going to lull me back. <laughs> you're just so soothing. Um, but that's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm here to talk about books. Um, and I'm talking about summer, summer reading today. The book, my book of the summer is uh, what I'm going to talk about. Um, not, to, not to hype it. It's actually the book of my summer, even though it came out like a year and a half ago. But you know what? Books take time to write. Mm. Let's, let's not, let's not um, commodify the, the time frames too much. <laughs> yeah. um, so this is actually, I'm not, I'm not saying the title yet deliberately because I'm like building suspense. I think that's a, that's a thing. 
right? Yeah. I cannot wait. Yeah. Oh, look at this energy. <laughs> um, so I picked it up as an audio book. Um, I was doing some traveling over the holidays um, and it ended up being a slight regret on my part, but not for initial reasons you think. So a friend of mine was reading it. We're on a holidays at the beach and she kept laughing all the time. And I was like reading the title of and the author. I was like, that's interesting. Did not expect this friend to get this into this author. And so then I was like, you know what? I have to give it a crack. And it was yearbook by Seth Rogen. And I am here now stating myself to be a Seth Rogen fan. Right. Yes. You're a stoner. Apparently so. so. I'm sure. I hope no students are listening, but yes, apparently so. Um, I saw Superbad once in like, I don't know, 2008, hated it Ah. and have avoided everything he's made ever since because apparently I judge you on one piece of work of art (laughs) and then just ignore everything else. But this book was hysterically funny um, and because I had the audio book, I was listening to it on the plane home and it became so embarrassing for me because I couldn't stop (laughs) laughing on the plane and I must have looked like I was having some sort of fit. It was like, this reference is really strange, but my dad, every time he used to read a Spike Milligan book, he would just be apoplectic. He would just just be crying, tears, you know, and I had – I have channeled, I have found my Spike Milligan in, in Seth Rogen, which is a huge call to make in and of itself. But Could I quickly ask? I love the idea of laugh out loud, the idea that anything can evoke yeah, laughter. Yeah, that, that, that expression. Is yeah. this a, a sort of common occurrence for you? Not really. Yeah. No. And that's what was so surprising about this book and also the fact that it was Seth Rogen because I just hated <laughs> Superbad so much. Um, so what is this book and, like, how is it structured and stuff? So it's sort of a loose-ish memoir. Um, it's got um, stories. They all take place out of timeline order. So sometimes he's 13, sometimes he's 25. Each chapter is like a different kind of chunk or anecdote. But it um, turns out that comedians actually know something of writing structure. Um, Also surprising for me. (laughs) Um, So we meet Seth. Initially, it started the book as a really awkward 13-year-old telling his mum he wants to learn how to do stand-up comedy. His mum's like, right, let's go finds her. She's pretty cool. She's actually very cool, actually, from all of the accounts in the book. Um, Finds him some stand-up comedy lessons. Um, He's the only kid there. And then they go do stand-up at a lesbian bar as like part of their graduation. And it turns out that every single chapter in this book follows the loose structure of how to write a joke Mm. from that initial stand-up comedy class. So, I mean, they're refined except but you know the essence of it is there's an anecdote there's a build-up there's a problem and then humorous conclusion and so each chapter works kind of as like a standalone event or anecdote so you don't know where he's going to take you and that was really great because none of the stories flowed together there wasn't really a logical flow um the last story I from memory is from like high school camp and he tells some of the most uh hilarious jokes about being Jewish and he's like and there was one line um I don't know if you know it was it was just it was great there's Jewish there's camps he's Jewish you can take it from there um 
it's just there's another anecdote about a guy who invented Apple, like um, Steve Wozniak. They go to a wizard bar. Like there's some really strange, wholesome anecdotes from this man and you can just read a chapter at random and have a really good time. Okay. Uh, would the essays, if, can we call them essays? Yeah, let's call Are them essays. Are they stand-alone-ish? <laughs> Do they feel like if they appeared in a magazine that you've read a complete art yes. article with an arc. Yes, because he often spends a lot of time as well not assuming knowledge. Mm. Um, and I really like that as well because um, one thing that he does significantly in the book is uh, talk about drugs. Mm. Um, and there is nothing more boring than hearing someone that's taken loads of drugs talk about their drug-taking experiences yeah, to me. Yeah, it's cringe, isn't it? Oh, yeah, but he doesn't make it cringe. And mm. my only dislike – and so he explains a lot of like – what is it like when you have a trip or something? Yeah. And the only problem I have with that is that he might empower other people to then tell others more about their drug-taking experiences because yeah. they're like, Seth Rogen did it really funny, so now I'm going to go to a party and talk nat- Nat's ear off about this time I took mushrooms. And It was funny when Seth Rogen did it. Yeah, mm. I think that's already happened. It's happening all <laughs> over the world because of comedians. <laughs> um, it's just there's the thing that, that really drove home with this book was like the insignificant details ended up being the funniest um a throwaway reference um in a story that's just it's about a half a page little joke within the scope of a larger joke um a man in a hotel in israel thinking that he and his mum were dating and them trying to communicate through yiddish and english it's one of the most funniest and ridiculous things because he's 17 i don't know his mum's like in her 50s and this man's assuming that they're dating and trying to push beds together (laughs) and it is just so weird and it's like it's just a very strange hilarious anecdote and you just don't expect you expect from reading a, a famous inverted commas uh, memoir you expect big names and big stories and some of those are there as well but there is probably the most famous anecdote you get involves him um having to take a wee in a bottle um, up someone's really long driveway before he meets a very famous person whose name i'm not gonna spoil spoil okay. um yes can, can i ask so let's say david sedaris might wean a bottle or something <laughs> and not find a place for that anecdote for 20 years maybe mm. Uh, mm. and then fold it into another story about bottles or I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Does, is there, does it feel artful? It does. It does. It's uh, – it's, you, you mentioned David Sedaris and I think that's great because there is a – it is a different kind of storytelling for Seth Rogen in particular. And I tried to rewatch Superbad and I still hate it, turns mm. out. Um, <laughs> but what, what are you going to say? Um, but there is something of the that kind of warmth essayist. Like David Sedaris can be very cutting and mm. so is Seth Rogen. I'm, I've never thought in my life as a book reviewer I would be comparing these two yeah. particular people, but I definitely can feel that sense of time. Like this is a book that has been percolating and I feel like all of these stories have been on the back burner because he's, he's about 40 now. Mm. So, you know, there's – there's a particular anecdote about when he was 16, he did stand up after Jerry Seinfeld at the peak of Seinfeld. Yeah. And so he's had that story in the back pocket for 24 years, mm. just waiting for the right moment to drop it in yeah. to another story 
in a bigger picture. That's interesting. And is there a sense that there was an impetus for this book to be written, that something occurred in Seth Rogen's life that he felt this this had to be told? I feel like it might have. A lot of it might have been... He doesn't mention the pandemic. I can't recall if it's mentioned specifically. But, you know, he do, he's really diversified his life. He makes a lot of pottery now mm. um, of a particular type of pottery. I'm sure we can um, come to some conclusions there. And so I think that... Probably a lot of it was during lockdown, having some time to actually write these ideas. But the the biggest thing about the book for me was the fact, and I've read it in paper form as well. So I've read the paper to compare with the audio book. And I have to say it is the best audio book that I have ever heard. Because of his voice? His voice and he has amazing, amazing voice actors that bring the stories in. So he has Jason Alexander who played George in Seinfeld. Um, He plays... Uh, Seth Rogen's very first terrible manager who's obsessed with Carrot Top. So in your head, you just got George's George being obsessed with Carrot Top while you're listening to this story. Um, He incorporates Foley sounds. So if the story takes place in a bar, Ah. there's, you know, glasses clinking and, and, you know, background noise and stuff. So it's almost like we've gone full circle back to the um, radio plays of like the 40s and 50s. Mm. But for me, this is the new yardstick for audiobooks. I listen to lots of them um, all the time and this is literally, it has the best sound design, yeah, wow. the the cast of actors, and I feel like it hasn't been hyped enough because I had no idea it was going to be – because when I, when I first started listening, I was like, oh, is that – is that Jason Alexander? You know, and I actually had to look it up to confirm. And there's um, Michelle Gondry um, is in it as well because they worked on a project together and Michelle Gondry apparently hated an actor and Seth Rogen thought it'd be funny to ask him to come in and recount an anecdote where he hated this actor. <laughs> uh, and, it, and it remains funny because Michelle Gondry is French and... and um, He's really unimpressed with this guy. Uh, So all of these little things kind of come together. It's a book of piecemeal essays um, with that David Sedaris. That's such a good call there with the the David Sedaris because he does pull these little things together into one big, big whole part of the whole essay. So, yeah. What a bombshell. Book of the summer. (laughs) Book of the summer. Reappraises Seth Rogen, finds him to be the millennial Spike Milligan. I know. That was coming. None Uh, of us did. None of us did. It's called Yearbook. Thanks very much, Fig. Thank you. Woo! Ah, That's right. Triple R. So I'm curious to know how you two feel about, and people in general, Mm. um, feel free to text in, how you feel about a, a random bumping to someone you know on the street. Oh, I adore it. Do you? Yeah, I live for that. Okay, this is so <laughs> interesting because I knew that I knew people like you existed. Yeah. It's like really thrilling for you. Or yeah. tell me take me through it. It just sort of um, creates this sense of connectedness, of feeling part of, you know, a neighborhood of, you know, friends, family and acquaintances. Yeah, I feel like I'm a participant in a, a community when I have a bump in. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So any time you leave the house, yes. if you were to bump into someone you knew, it would be a welcome. Oh, I'd be so delighted. Oh, wh- yeah. this is wild. Yeah. Okay, okay that's really But I, I do also very much understand if someone has a purpose that they're wishing to fulfil. 
and uh, an unexpected encounter might delay them, why they would prefer to sort of navigate around that, perhaps? Okay, yeah, absolutely. I suppose, so a bit of context, yesterday I needed to get my phone repaired. So I went to a shopping centre and the turnaround time for the phone to be fixed was an hour. So I was hanging around the shopping centre. Yeah. It's quite near my house. It's a popular shopping centre attachment to lots of kind of different suburbs. And I found that was a scenario that made the pro- probability for a bump in really high. <laughs> I personally, like, don't dislike them, but I can find them really nerve-wracking for some reason. Well, like, yeah, you haven't prepared for it mentally. It, yeah. yeah, and sometimes I can just be kind of browsing and if I'm faced with someone when I'm not expected, like I kind of get, I feel lightheaded. <laughs> like sometimes, and I find it difficult to focus on the conversation. Yes. And yesterday I bumped into someone. It was fine, very briefly. But then I started thinking about it because then I almost had a, another second bump in. Yeah. I saw someone in the corner of my eye and they saw me, mm. but they were in really casual clothes, more casual than I am used to seeing them. They were carrying like what looked like their washing and they were in a moon boot. Oh, and, my God. Yes. Those poor buggers. Yeah. Exactly. And I just felt like this is not the time. Yeah. You didn't want to disturb them. Exactly. Yes. And I just was like, is there this this kind of etiquette? To the bump in. I feel like there is maybe a little bit yes. to it. But before we dive into that, I want to know how you feel about them. Uh, it probably changes. But yeah. a, as a rule, I'm very much in favour of bump ins. I okay. think bump ins can uh, often, for me, blossom into a full blown catch up. Wow. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because it's yeah, so yeah, difficult to schedule those. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and so if someone calls it, I mean, I've had a bump in on a tram that resulted in a subsequent and immediate catch-up in a pub. (laughs) I was going to say, I feel like this is heading to a pub. I love that. That's great. I feel like a bump in on public transport is like a high-intensity bump in. That's huge. Because you are, like, you're enclosed. You're not quite sure where someone's getting off. Yeah, people can hear you. Yeah, exactly. There's an audience for the bump in. That Mm. is hands down, I think, the most stressful part. Mm. I always get very stressed when I hear parents with their kids on a train as well and the kids are like, why is he doing that, <laughs> mummy? And I'm oh, like, no. oh, how are they going to handle that? Yeah, it's- but I, I I do get it. I mean, sometimes I'll – I'm always there for a, a bump in. I'm – my eyes are raised. I'm <laughs> – Inviting receptive yeah. body language. Yeah. You yeah. even would have gone at that person with the washing and potentially. No, oh, no, I think you made the right call. Okay. Uh, yeah. But who knows? Maybe the bumping was just what they needed. Well, that's the difficulty, isn't it? Isn't so it? many variables. Yeah. Yes, indeed. But so my it's... eyes, were, I mean, I had a, a near miss bump in the other day. Okay. And it was quite. I, I don't want to over-egg it and say it was shocking or confronting, but it, yep. it, the fact that I I was looking forward to the bump in, yes. I, we were approaching. Oh, okay. And I was like, <laughs> this is the perfect person I want to bump into because we're not going to schedule anything. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I was – was I blanked or was I not seen? Yes. I mean, You I won't don't know. know. You'll never know. I, know. I love that this – kind of that you two love it so much and this is emerging but it's fraught it is fraught with complications and like you just said 
just then, it could be that the person completely missed you or that they didn't want to offend you by not stopping to chat so they preferred to pretend like they didn't see you potentially. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the window's still open for the person. Yeah. <laughs> if you did see Daniel, please yeah. get in touch because mm. he's primed and ready to go to the pub. I just think as you get older, well, screw getting older, it doesn't yeah. matter, always err on the side of doing it and yeah. saying hi. Okay. I like that. Uh, that's that's not a philosophy that I've had for ages. Yep. It's just evolved. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Especially coming out of lockdown or whatever. I think they're yeah, worth that's, to play. Yeah, I think that that is very true. I'm loving this idea of you being so keen for a, a bump in that you're just like, cruising the streets. <laughs> I'm loitering, basically. Yeah, you cut another lap. <laughs> I, <laughs> I feel like there is some context, though, like in a supermarket. Mm. Like what you're talking oh, yeah. about, not sure whether they've seen you or not. My general rule of thumb is that if I see someone in a supermarket and I'm not sure whether they've seen me, if they are kind of in an aisle close and then you're like, I'll probably see them in the next aisle and yeah. then they're gone, they've gone to the other end of the supermarket yes. and they're avoiding <laughs> you intentionally. That is my thought. Not because they don't want to speak to you, but for whatever reason, maybe they just need their time – on a time limit, because I know I've done that myself. Not because I didn't want to mm. see the person, but because I can get really socially anxious. Like, not indeed, but I mean, potentially in defence of those people that you have eluded you in the supermarket, it is often designed topographically to require shoppers to navigate as much of the space as possible. So it could be that they went in for two items and it just took them to both sides of the supermarket. Yeah, wow, mm. is that true? It is ah. to maximise your time within yeah. the environment. Believe I that. agree with you that I think the supermarket, <laughs> the context of a supermarket is I'm here for a job. Yep. It's, it's also quite a vulnerable place mm. insofar as you're exposing people what? can see all your interior items. Exactly. Mm. I have had a bump in in the supermarket where I've seen their eyes dart ever so slightly down to my basket. Yeah. Oh, dead set. And it was I felt like it was embarrassing what so was in there. The basket of shame. I would say supermarket, yep. n- no acknowledgement or, you know, be be respectful of people's aversion. Yes. Uh a shopping centre in the thoroughfares, yep. I think that's prime location that's... for bump in. <laughs> that's open. And then on the street, I'd say practically mandatory. Yes. <laughs> also, there's one place, 100%, like no matter who they are to you, eyes down for it and you didn't see them, mm. in a pharmacy. <laughs> yeah. No bump ins in a pharmacy. Triple R. Uh. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of The Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.